This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. This is a gentleman I've been trying to get for the last two years. He wanted to wait till he got in the Basketball Hall of Fame before he came on with me, and he finally did. It's long overdue. The newest member of the Basketball Hall of Fame, Spencer Haywood. Oh, thank you so much. And, yeah, it's been 27 years of eligibility. And, uh, you know, things happen not on my time, not on the Hall of Fame time, but on God's time. So I'm okay with it. I'm very good with it. At least you get to enjoy it. A lot of people going after they pass away, and I just feel bad for those guys, their families. Yeah, you know, um, you know, you see that, and you see it so often, and you say, "Wow, wow, wow!" <laughs> but you know, uh, I'm just, I'm just grateful to, to be going in at this time, and it's, it's the right time. It's a good time. You know, uh, it's a pretty exciting time for me. I'm here and right now in Atlanta for the uh, Atlanta Hawks and Cleveland series, uh, where the owner of the the Atlanta Hawks, Ed, one of the owners, Ed uh, Petskowitz, has brought me down to sit with him on the court side and to honor me in terms of respect that I have brought for owners in the NBA. Most people think that I, because when in my case, Haywood versus the NBA, that it was just for the players, but it was more so as well with the owners because the owners franchise has went up from, uh, you know, like, uh, 150 million to 2 billion these days. So it's the way it is. A beautiful thing, I tell you, to be honored in your own lifetime. Great. You played for a number of teams. Is there one team you identify more with? I identified mostly with Seattle, with the Seattle Supersonics, and and that is where the case took place. Uh, for your audience, let me just explain to them, so you, may, you might have a lot of young people who do not know, like my daughters, for an example. They don't know. <laughs> there was, uh, before I challenged the NBA in its then four-year rule, you had to sit out for four years after your high school class had graduated before you could go into the pros or you could stay in college for four years. So, and since 1971, this ruling been in effect and that, that fight took me all the way to the Supreme Court. And that was through the lower courts, through the state court, all the way to the Supreme Court. And it took a, a one year battle for that to happen because of the fact that the NBA, the NC2A, and the ABA were fighting against it. And even though the ABA had allowed me to play under the a hardship rule a year earlier, but they were fighting for a contract. The NC2A was saying that uh, this ruling is going to destroy college basketball as we know it. And the NBA was saying we cannot control the athletes that were becoming at that, at that younger age, and we would like have uh, a little bit of a problem because our fan base would have some problems, some issues with a lot of black athletes coming into the NBA. So it was a control factor, and uh, those were the days. <laughs> did you, when you decided to go forward, did you realize that that case was going to be so monumental, or did you just think, you know what, this is just about me right now? Well, no, it was never about me because, I mean, my ruling, uh, the reason I fought this, I had a contract. I had a contract with the ABA, and as well, I had a contract 
I had my ABA contract, which I was getting paid, and the Seattle Supersonics had signed me to an agreement, a contract, and I was being paid and played, but they said, well, the owner of the Sonics said, well, listen, even if you don't want to fight this case, you only have one year. Why don't we just pay you the money and you set out for this year? And yet you would be our property and you, you would come in next year and play. I said, no, no, because of the fact that the players that are coming after me would need this. They would need this because it's a lot of guys that won't be able to, to make it four years in college or there's a lot can happen for four years in college. And my main reason was my mother was picking cotton in Silver City, Mississippi for $2 a day. She had been picking cotton from the time she was five years old. And so at that time, she was picking cotton on her knees because she was uneducated. So she she had picked cotton for like 60 years, 50-something years, and her back was gone, so she was still dragging a 100-pound sack around on her knees. That's what my fight was about. It wasn't about civil rights. It wasn't about anything. It was just I wanted my mother to get off of her knees out of the cotton fields of Civil City, Mississippi. And we were the poorest county in the United States at that time. She'd be so proud of you when you made it in the NBA. Yeah, yeah. She was very proud, but she never got a chance to see me play live. And it's just a shame. But uh, it's the way life is. You know, she never saw me play in high school. She never saw me play in college. She never saw me play in the Olympics. She never saw me play in the pros. <laughs> when you... When you set that field goal percentage record in the Olympics, do you think that's a record that'll ever be broken? Uh, no. Well, it, it might be broken now because you got uh, all of the players. Let me just go back for a little bit of history, so that we just we're speaking to my daughters, so they, they're learning too. <laughs> so what happened in 1968 in the 68 Olympics? We had a black boycott. Uh, led by Harry Edwards. And this boycott uh, started in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar boycotted. Elvin Hayes did not go to the Olympics. Wesley Unseld did not go. So they allowed a young freshman named Spencer Hayward to try out for the team, which I was at a junior college. If I had been at a major university, I wouldn't have been able to play. And I tried out for the team, and I was the first player picked at age 18, and just the first player pick for the Olympic team. And uh, uh, from there, I, I, I started playing. And, and uh, we also cut. These are the guys who got cut that year from the Olympic team. Pete Maravich from LSU. Calvin Murphy from Niagara Falls. Uh, Rick Mount from Purdue. Uh, Bob Lanier didn't make it. Uh, Tom Bullwinkle didn't make it. So these are the kind of players that were cut. So there I was, this young kid, to save America, because at that time we were in a Cold War with the Russians. And, you know, the, the Cold War meaning that, you know, the Russian domination or the United States domination. So we, we went out and played. And I set not only the field goal percentage record that Olympics, I set the most points in the history of the Olympics. And that record stood until this guy from Oklahoma broke it, Kevin Durant, shooting three-pointers. <laughs> and uh, 
So he broke my scoring record. I also set the record as the youngest player in the history of America. Then that kid from uh, the young guy from uh, now, I know these guys, so I'm just playing with them in a way. But uh, Dwight, uh, I mean, what's his name? Davis, Anthony Davis broke it by one month as the youngest player to ever play in the Olympics. And I still own the rebound and then the field goal So. I'm still around in the Olympics. <laughs> did you ever think about not okay. going? Did you ever think of following Elvin Hayes and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's lead and not playing in the Olympics? Oh, my God, no. It was impossible for me to even think such a bad thing. I mean, shoot. Before the, the Olympics, I had no – I came up from Mississippi to, to Chicago, from Chicago to Detroit, and I played my high school ball in Detroit and my college ball. But – I was I was so enthused about getting that doggone passport because we went to Russia, Yugoslavia, and all the other places before the, the Olympics games. But, oh, absolutely not. I mean, that would have been like, my mother would have, like, just rolled over and just died for, for me not going to play for America. Oh, my God, she's a flag-waving mother, you know? <laughs> So, no, that was not going to happen. And I, I loved the idea. And then we had George Foreman. Uh, we had George Foreman knocked out the Russian. Uh, we had Big Flaw Fosbury who ran up onto the, the to the bar to jump, sizzle kick for it's the high jump, and jumped over the thing backwards. We had Bob Beeman <laughs> who jumped out of the pit and the long jump jumped over the freaking pit. And... And and so George Foreman and I were the two young guys on the on the team. And we had John Carlos and Tommy Smith doing the black glove salute. Oh my God. I mean, it was just a beautiful time at the Olympics. And uh George Foreman and I were just so young and we were just thinking of one thing. How do we eat this commissary out of all of his food? That was our whole journey. And we had Jesse Owens came down and he was speaking to us about you know, thinking about doing something, uh, saluting or, 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 or stepping away from the Olympics. And he, he kind of got really angry and he looked at all of us in the, in the room of the, all of the Olympics and said, all of the Olympians and said, Hey, what would you guys have done if you had to run before Hitler? And we go, <laughs> Oh my God, let's put on, let's put on our gear. And so we put on, <laughs> everybody put on that. The jogging suit that we had for the Olympics, and like, hey man, we going, we got playing, ain't no problem here. What's funny <laughs> so, about what's, that was a that was a great time. That was a great time, great time for America as well. Do you still have your gold medal? Yes, I sure do. I think what's interesting is Jesse Owens' gold medal from that Olympics just got sold last year for I think over a million dollars. And uh, what was well, so, so my my medal may be worth two million dollars. Not <laughs> but what's what's interesting is who owned that medal? Jesse Owens' who family, Billy Bojangles, had it. Oh wow! What a what a historical statement here. So the medal oh, went from Jesse it. Owens wow. to Billy Bojangles, and Billy Bojangles Bill estate sold it. Yeah. Oh. Mr. Bojangles, yeah. Your daughter probably, your daughter probably doesn't know who. Your daughter probably doesn't know who Bull. Yeah, she probably has no idea who Bojangles is. You must talk about. You can't be better than Savion Glover. What are you talking about, Dad? (laughs) 
How did you end up going to Detroit for college? I would think UCLA would have been after you, Kentucky. Well, no, all of them. I, I, well, let me just that's another whole story, too. Um, what happened was um, I ended up at the University of Detroit because I went to high school in, in Detroit. But I signed with the University of Tennessee out of high school. And I went down to the University of Tennessee on, at Knoxville and was on campus. And lo and behold, Adolf Rupp who had lost to Texas Western, the first black team to ever win the NCAA. He says, well, I was supposed to get the first black player coming in the Southeastern Conference, a big superstar kind of guy. And so there was this argument and this fight going on about, you know, what was going to happen and why I got to go down and see Mr. Rupp because he had the, you know, the dibs. And so I went down, but I didn't, I did not like Kentucky and I didn't like the atmosphere where I was going to be playing it. And my whole goal, the reason why I went to the University of Tennessee, all I wanted to do is show my mother I can play, and it was going to be at, and uh, it was going to be at, uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was going to be in, um, I was going to play against Mississippi State and uh, the University of Mississippi, so she could see me play and stuff. So that was the whole point of it. But then uh, that all backfired, so I had to end up going to the junior college. And from the junior college, after I made the Olympics and won the gold and the MVP, yes, UCLA, all of the big schools were calling. And But we had just went through a riot, the riots in Detroit in 1967. And so um, right away, I, you know, I decided, well, I wanted to come back and help my city survive and help my city get back on its feet and also Will Robinson, who had raised me and was my dad, who was the coach, who wanted to be the coach at the University of Detroit, and also Governor Romney, not that Romney, but his daddy, uh, wanted me to come back to Detroit and the Mayor Kavanaugh of, mm-hmm. of Detroit. He wanted me to be uh, back in Detroit. So I, just, I chose the University of Detroit to help, help my dad get the job and all of that. And... Lo and behold, I got there and was the uh, outstanding college player of the year, averaging um, 33 points and 23 rebounds per game. And, uh, and they reneged on the deal with Will Robinson, so that's why I left and left early. But, uh, yeah, I had all of the offers. I had the grades and I had everything. I was, I was a student. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I thought it was the right choice, but I, I did it because my heart was there. When you joined the ABA, was it more fun playing in the ABA because it was so much more of a wide open style than the NBA back then? Yes, it was. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but you know the NBA. The reason I joined the ABA is because the NBA they had a four year rule, so I right. couldn't go in there. And the ABA had a four year rule, but they made an exception for me at that time, and they called us a big press conference, and we were trying to figure out how we're going to justify this with the NCAA and with everyone else. And Hannah Storm's father, Mark Storm, says, well, you know, I got a, I got an idea. So he gets up on the podium and he says, well, we are the former slave owners and we want to give Spencer Hayward reparation. And everything's going on. I'm sitting there with my head shaking like, oh, my God, what a great idea. And so the NC Trey and no one came after us. They just said, let him play. And so I played there and I was like, wow, what a, what a, what a, what a great game to play and what you know, when you're developing and stuff like that. So I had that great year in, in the ABA. I was the rookie of the year, leading scorer, 
leading rebounder, MVP of the All-Star game, and MVP of the league. And I averaged 30 and 20 for my young daughters. 30 and 20 for 82 games. <laughs> Who needs Dr. J? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Dr. J did come in under the Spencer Hayter rule the next year. It's, but, it's uh, in, but people forget about you with the ABA. Everybody talks about Dr. J. Uh, no, but. Uh, I know. You know, history sometimes is crazy, but uh, I hope that all of this come come out now because of the hall and all of this. But, uh, yeah, that, I saved that ABA. I really did. And I paved the way so that Julius and Gervin and all those guys could leave college early and come right into the ABA. And I remember one night when I was playing in Seattle, my, my first game out there, um, this is before the case. We had we were under injunctions not to play, and so I ended up playing. And I ripped the ball off off the backboard, and I dribbled it up the floor, and I went through my legs and took off from the free throw line and dunked. And the fans in Seattle were like, "Ooh, he's a hot dog, hot dog!" So they stopped booing <laughs> because they had never seen that. Because the NBA style of play was so. Oh boy, it was so robotic, and we came over from I came over from the ABA with all of that flair and all of that stuff. And so, the next game I played there, they were like on the edge of their seats and cheering, like, "Oh, we got it, we got, I we love this kind of basketball." <laughs> and so, consequently, you know, you look at the NBA today, and you look at the style of play. All of it is ABA style of basketball. The only thing that's left. Uh, was that, that wasn't taken from the ABA was the ball itself, the red, white, and blue ball. But the three-point shooting, the skills competitions, all that stuff, we had to drum up uh, fan participating, the participation in the All-Star weekend, you know. So that's how we, we started doing all of that stuff. So it was just uh, – that's what the ABA has given the, given the world of basketball. I, and sometimes this, maybe I'll do this in my speech. You know, I'll, I'll do a, a good speech on history no, of, of the game and stuff. So I'm, what we're talking about today will be part of my 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 enshrinement speech. I, I won't I won't talk about Spencer Haywood like that. I'm gonna talk about the game and the beauty of the game and what we have, uh, how far we have come, and sort of educate people because I got four daughters and one of my daughters played up there near you. She played at Northern Illinois University for four years, and uh, she's on her way to the University of Denver and have for a doctorate now. No, you're right. I mean, people don't realize the history. You get the Elgin Baylors, what they went through, the Oscar Robertsons. Oh, my God, Elgin Baylor, that's the name. My gosh. He played. You know, if you talk to, to Oscar Robertson, Spencer Haywood, and all of us, and you say, who was the baddest dude? The first thing we were going to say, Elgin Baylor, a bad man. And you know who else was a bad man? I was just sending a letter to Eldridge Rokasner, one of the young guys that are on the board of directors with the Retired Players Association. I was explaining to him, because, you know, they're looking at the series with uh, Houston and and, and, uh, and Golden State, and they said, Rick Barry was a bad man, wasn't he? He played pretty good that series. I was like, boy. That was a bad man. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, Elgin Baylor was the first one to play above the rim. Right, right, right. He had the big, big hands and big moves. And, oh, Lord, what a beautiful, what an artful player. You know, just had 
he had so much skill, and it was just beautiful to see that. And that's why when I was in college, I combed my hair to the side and put a part in it because I loved me some Elgin Baylor. I wanted to be just like Elgin. Another guy who was similar in build to you who passed away way too early was Maurice Stokes. People talk about him. They oh, said he could have been one of the Lord. greatest ever. Wow, you're talking baller here, sir. Maurice Stokes, you know, what a great player. Never got a chance to show all of his great stuff. He was, he was something else. Jack Twyman, who took care of him after he had the stroke, said that he reminded yeah. him of LeBron James the way he played. Yeah, well, there's something about those Ohio guys. I don't know what it is. Oscar Robinson, LeBron James, and, you know, Gus Johnson and all those guys. Something else there that I, we got to watch out for. Us guys from Michigan and, and us players from Illinois, we got to look out, look out for those guys. You know, something is going on with those big old guys. Jerry Lucas, another Ohio guy. Another another one. Havlicek. Oh, boy, you know. Got to watch out for them. So when you were with the Supersonics, what was it like playing in Seattle? Because, I mean, you don't think about Seattle as a basketball town. Seattle was just like it is. If you think Seattle, the way they rave and go on about the Seahawks, Seattle Supersonic basketball was like that. It was the best franchise, the best everything. And when they stole the team and moved it to Oklahoma City, it was the eighth best team in the league in terms of attendance and everything. So it makes no sense, but I do, because if you sue the NBA, eventually they're going to get you. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. The only one who, actually the best deal was those ABA owners who gave up their franchise. They're still getting royalty rights from the NBA every year. I can't think of which owners those are, but they're getting checks that is every the, that, that, is, that is the St. Louis, spirit of St. Louis. They're getting paid big checks. And all the players who played in the ABA, who built the ABA, they can't even get a pension. It's a shame. For their play. Ain't that ain't whoa whoa ain't that a shame? Which you think the NBA would take care of them because without the ABA, like you said, you went ahead yourself, you went ahead the Dr. J's, the Dan Issels, Artis Gilmore's, any of those guys. No, but maybe that's where Spencer Haywood is always out on the front limb and always got to speak about things. Part of my speech at the hall. Take care of those old players. Do something for them. Because you know the players that came to me already. The Jimmy Jones and all of those guys who played with New Orleans and all of Oh, yeah. No, because of Fourth Fatty you. Taylor. Oh, yeah, Fatty Taylor. All those guys are like, hey, man, you got you to gotta talk, speak up for us. I'm like, oh, man, why do I have to carry the burden? No, I mean, if it wasn't for you. I, don't, I didn't get a pension. No, if it wasn't for you and Oscar Robertson. You know that? You never got a pension? Me and Moses Malone didn't get a pension from the ABA. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for you and Oscar Robertson, the players today wouldn't have half the stuff they got. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't even have half. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me just give, let me give your audience one last note here. Because I have to do some other interviews, but like. No problem. Let's look at this. This is what I've given to the players. LeBron James. Four more years on his career, four more years at $20 million plus per year, $80 million. Kobe Bryant, $25 million 
for a year, four more years on his career for $100 million. So it goes all the way back down to your boy, Michael Jordan, all of them, Magic Johnson, all of them, Scotty, all of them. They all, this money that they have made has been tremendous because of one ruling that I took the battle to all the way to the Supreme Court so that they can have that kind of wealth. And they don't even know my name. <laughs> no, it's a, it's an absolute shame. What was your, what was your favorite moment in the NBA? Uh, boy. Or favorite, favorite game. Moment in the, the favorite moment in the NBA was the 1970. I was just reading about it and I was looking it up because I, I, somebody was giving me my, my stats and stuff and we were just talking about it on, uh, on, on an article we were writing. Um, it was showing the 1974 All-Star Game in Seattle on my floor where I had 23 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists, and they gave the uh, MVP award to Bob Lanier. <laughs> Which was on my team. I said, "Oh my God, he had twenty. He had twenty-three, I think it was, and and ten rebounds and no assists. And I gave him all of the points. And I played thirty-three minutes. He played twenty-three. And but I, I was always under the spell because I sued the NBA that whatever I do, I wasn't going to get no recognition for it. So that's a, a perfect example. And I remember that game because I went off on the." NBA and the people who were putting on the All-Star game because I said, I will never get justice in America. You know, I was the militant dude for me. There will never be justice in the NBA in America. <laughs> <laughs> and so Bob Lanier was hiding his head from me in the, lo in the locker room. I was like, and you are a fraud, sir. <laughs> you got to be careful. He might have take those size, what, 20-some shoes and shoved it up, you know, where? Oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, Bob and I played against each other in college. And we, were, we were big rivals back at the Bunny and the University of Detroit. And then we would go down the line over there with those renegades down at Notre Dame, Austin Carr, Sid Catlett, and all those boys. And then we run up to... Uh, Dean Meminger and all of those guys up at uh, Marquette and stuff like that. And then down a little further, we'd go up to Philadelphia, Kenny DeRed and, and Howard, um, Howard Port and all those guys up at Villanova and uh, LaFayette. So it was some balling back then down in the Midwest, you know, and there was DePaul, you know. So it was just good old-fashioned balling, man. We're going to take a short break here on Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com. And when we come back... We're going to get to an interview I did with Los Angeles Dodger broadcaster, a living legend, Vince Scully. 